Okay, hi everybody. This is Richard Sachs. I hope you're all doing well. This is our show for Worldwide Broadcast on the seventh day of May already. We're almost halfway through with 2017, and it feels like it started about 15 minutes ago to me. So I don't know <laughs> if you're having a similar experience or not, but we have a, a treat for this show, and uh, that is that uh, we have the return of Dr. Bill Warner. Uh, for those of you who haven't gotten to listen to the archives of our shows with Dr. Warner, I highly recommend that if you're interested in your own education, and this is in the area of Islam, which is a big current events-related subject these days, then you ought to go back and listen to the free archives at lostartsradio.com. Get yourself up to speed. We've covered a lot of the uh, topics leading up to today's discussion. And in case you haven't heard him yet, Dr. Warner is a scientist, not a theologian, but he did a great service in correlating and and, uh, cross-referencing all three major scriptures of Islam. There's a lot of people, especially in the West, think that there's just the Quran, but that's not at all true, which you'll understand more by hearing the archives. But there's the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, and they're all interconnected and interdependent. And to get a complete understanding of Islam, then um, even a lot of Muslims could, uh, you know, benefit from filling in areas where maybe their understanding is not absolutely complete. So what Dr. Warner did in that massive group of, of the trilogy is to make it easy in a bunch of small guides which he wrote using the original uh, text of each of those three uh books and scriptures and saying where to go to see what's written on each subject and then put them in a timeline correlated with them with Muhammad's life, which is absolutely essential for the uh, contextual understanding. And I recommend that everybody read those. I've read most of them. Um, So from now on, the Muslim scriptures, the scriptures of Islam are easily accessible to everyone. You can get the books at politicalislam.com and I recommend that you do that. And there are courses available there as well. Um, so anyway, sorry for the long introduction, but I have a couple of other things to say, but thank you for being with us, Dr. Warner. I really appreciate the time greatly, and I'm enjoying our series. Well, I'm enjoying our conversations, which is what I think of them more than an interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me too. So I want to see if you agree with um, a procedure for today's discussion. Um because we've already covered a lot, you know, Muhammad's life, some of the history of Islam, the position of women, slavery, um, different ethical issues, and a bunch more stuff like that. So for this week, I had asked you off air, what what do you think would be good to talk about? Should we go into current events or what would be most helpful for the listener's education? Um, so we have questions that you provided that people had asked you, a a long list, which I think are all excellent. So I do want to go over those, but I thought, why don't we make it a little bit of fun, you know, instead I've been paying attention to our discussion so far, and I read the books, and I'm going to bring up each question that you've supplied, and I'm going to ask you if, if my understanding of the basics of what it's about are true and then let you correct me and do the full answer to the question, if that seems okay to you. Let's try this. This could be fun. Yeah. And and if I'm way out to lunch and get them all completely wrong, then I'll say, well, I'm just a radio host. I'm not supposed to understand anything <laughs> anyway. I'll just let you finish it. 
Um, but before we do that, um, just in the interest of full disclosure, I, you know, of prejudice of any kind, I, I want to say that from what I've learned from you and what I knew a little bit of before, I think Muhammad, in, from what I can tell historically, was really a good man. And that he was a responsible businessman, he managed uh, caravan trade, which took a lot of uh, intelligence and perception and staying wide awake to what was going on around him. And furthermore, I think, I don't see anything in what we've discussed so far to say that he was not the prophet of Muhammad. I think he probably was. What he's doing, I say was, because I'm really honestly not sure what he's doing now, but as far as during the time that we've looked at I think that it seems like he was the prophet of Muhammad, that it looks like he did have an encounter with a supernatural being. Um, the, the character of that being and of, um, of Allah, I, prophet of Muhammad, I think I said prophet of Muhammad, I, I meant prophet of Allah. And the character of Allah and the supernatural being that Muhammad met are very important and interesting to look at. But... I don't see anything that we've said so far to indicate that he was not exactly what he said he was. And it was and just this, a question you've, of... You've touched on an interesting point. Yeah. Nowhere in the literature is there ever a wink and a nudge. Meaning, what does that mean? That is, he never... He never dropped character. He never seemed to have anybody right. that... That is, if, if he were a con man, and he saw, he saw himself as a con man, yeah. then... There would be a wink and a nudge somewhere. Somebody else would be in on the con. So I yeah, think that, I, no, I think he was very sincere from what we've learned from you, and that he stayed true to his purpose through his whole life, and he played one role from when he finally, you know, he from what you've taught us, he didn't want to become the prophet of anybody. He just was put in a position where this being that he met said that he needed to do that, and he reluctantly agreed. But I don't see any um, anything to say that he wasn't exactly who he said he was. Now, what the character of that supernatural being that he met turned out to be had some issues, you know, and, and <laughs> the, the God that they were following. But I, I just want to say, and from where I'm coming from, I don't see any deception in, in what Muhammad was giving out if, we're, if we have the accurate story. See, what I do, my point of analysis is this. I make no judgments about whether the Quran is true or false. I just say it is. And in, it, in its, what does it say to us? That is, I don't try to condemn it. If you'll notice, actually, there, I've met Muslims who are a little confused by me because listen carefully to what I write and what I say. I never condemn Muhammad. I never say the Quran is not true. I just point out what the consequences of it are. I'm like a, a mathematician who we create a certain number system and we operate within the rules of the number system we have created. And so I just say that these three books are here. Mm -hmm. What do they mean? How are they interpreted? And then, of course, I've done a lot of measurement of them, which has revealed some things because yeah. the nature of the doctrine is it's dualistic and always has two answers to a question. But I never condemn Muhammad. I never condemn the Quran. I just right. say, here's what he did, here's what he said, and here are the consequences of that. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm just pointing out exactly what not only the Quran, but the Sirah and the Hadith actually say. Just that is incredibly educational, because I haven't 
really run into one person that has a thorough background understanding of all of them uh, up to now, and, and it's become much easier to do. So, and the other disclosure point I want to make is that of the Muslim people that I know in my own life, I really love and appreciate and respect all of them, and they're great people. And, and they, well, the kind of life that they're living is exemplary. I, I like them very much. So, this is not anything against Muslim people at all. This is strictly for those Muslims or non-Muslims that really honestly want to understand what's written in those three scriptures and what does it mean. And by the way, it's important to say that we're talking about what's written in those three scriptures. I sometimes say, well, I know a Muslim and he says and he doesn't or he does. And it's like, I'm not talking about an individual adherent as to what they say or don't say. I'm right. just saying this is what the book says. Exactly. And, and I think that's really the only subject we're, we're looking at because what each person wants to do in their own life is a completely different issue. We're just looking at what Muhammad said that you should do in your life. Right? Correct. Okay, so I'm going to look at this list that you gave me, and I'm not going to use up much of the time at all, but I'm just going to tell oh, you from... from oh, by the, the way, we can also, if I may interrupt yeah. here, we yeah, can also, ahead. if there's any current event that's, that's in your face that you kind of wonder, yeah, does it have an interpretation? I think I started off the list with the Pope going to Egypt. But yeah, anyway. we're going to start there. But okay. yeah, I'll bring, the, I'll bring those things up too. This, there's a lot of material here. So I'm just going to give very brief impression from your previous um, discussions with me and, and see if I'm on the right track, and then you'll go ahead and give the real answer. So on your first one, you, the question that was given to you is, Pope Francis went to Cairo in Egypt seeking to mend ties with Islam, what are Islam's ties to the churches, the history, and the doctrine? Why are the Christian leaders uh, cowards and, and ignorant? And so, just really quick, my impression from your previous talks is that Islam has previ previously attacked the church physically in military force. In fact, that's why there are walls around the Vatican. So, the previous ties were not ties of alliance. And the history was one of conflict, um, both in, in doctrine and in uh, military application. And as far as why Christian leaders, the really well-known ones, some of the well-known ones, are not brave enough or knowledgeable enough or both to tell the truth about this stuff, is I think, in, in my own research, is, is nothing like yours in, in Islam, but it is pretty in-depth in uh, the background of world events, and I would say that the some of the high-level religious leaders are working on a, on a different agenda, which is to use Islam as one of many tools to destabilize society so that they can unify it under a, a single tyranny. But that's just what I've come across so far. Well, I certainly think that for the left, that is certainly true. Uh, there is an alliance, which has been noted by many people, about the alliance between the left and Islam. So that's certainly that. There is a history. We, let, let's, let's go over the history of Islam with Christianity as is revealed in the Sirah. And it's also re reflected in the Quran. Okay. At first, Muhammad was rather positive towards the Christians. Now, there was Christianity in Arabia. So th this was something that he could know about. 
So, but at first he was rather positive and I would even say tolerant. One of the most amusing verses in the Quran is Muhammad, uh, the, the God of the Quran says that Christians are better than Jews when it comes to your relations with them. Now, there's an evolving history there, though, because at first the Quran is very favorable to the Jews. And it, the tie here is that Muhammad presented himself as an extension of the same Jewish tradition. Right, so right. at first he was very favorable to the Jews and said, basically, look, I'm the caboose on the train, on the what I call the Jewish prophet train. I'm the last one. Okay. And it was very, but it was very favorable to Christians. But then what happened was, if you read the Quran as a historical document, that is, as something that unfolded over time, which, by the way, when I use the term myth here, I do not mean it in the sense of a fairy tale, but in the sense of a cosmic story. The myth of the Quran is, is that it evolved. And we have, it, was re, it went from day to day, and it involved it as a need for Muhammad's needs. That is, whenever he had a problem, the Quran solved it for it. So at first, the Jews solved Muhammad's problem of being a prophet because those who were in Mecca had heard of the Jews. There doesn't appear to have been any in Mecca. But they, so the Jews, they knew had a tradition and a book. And so now Muhammad was sort of just like them. As time goes on, though, Muhammad turned against the Jews, subjugated them, killed them, enslaved them, and made them dimmies. And then the last year of his life, he spent waging war to the north in Syria, where he had been there as a caravan trader. So he's, his first relation with the Christians was good, then it became dodgy, and then finally it became uh, very negative. That is, they were enslaved and made dimmies. Mm -hmm. So that the relationship of the uh, Muhammad to the Christians has a changing history. Now, that's interesting. War itself is a political action. It may have a religious motivation. But there's another piece of business in the Quran which is not talked about too much, which is the Quran launches a full-scale attack upon the story of Jesus and the Gospels. So that's another part of the relation. And I find that most Christians do not want to deal with the theology of the Quran as it relates to Christianity. This is a, but it, the genius of, of Islam was that Muhammad did not use regular warfare with just kinetic warfare, that is, assassinate, you know, war, bands, strategies, and tactics. He was more than that. He waged war across a broad front. And against the Christians, he waged a war that was physical and kinetic, and he also waged a war that was theological. I've been to meetings in which Jew, Muslims in the audience would stand up, and these are uh, interfaith gatherings. You've got the Jew, the minister, and the imam. And by the way, at those meetings, the imam is the only one who shows up and has done all his homework. Because mm -hmm. I've seen Christian leaders bumfuzzled by questions, questions that are classic theology from the Muslims. And you can tell that for the Christian minister, this is the first time he's heard this question. Hmm. And this relates not more not to the, and remember, at these events, the uh, Muslim who shows up is well-trained. Here's an example. One of the first interfaith meetings occurred here in Nashville, Tennessee after 9-11. A Baptist minister, a reform rabbi, and an imam are there. And my wife, back in those days, you could ask questions of the panel. They don't allow that anymore because those questions did turn out not to be favorable sometimes. Now they make you write them down on a piece of paper and they'll choose the one they want. 
But anyway, they allowed my wife to ask a question on the floor, and she asked the minister, says, have you read the Quran? No. She asked the rabbi, have you read the Quran? No. She asked the imam, have you read the Old Testament? Yes, I've had courses in it. Have you read the New Testament? Yes, I've had courses in it. So who did their homework? Right. And this right. is a great tragedy, is, is that the Jew and the Christian showed up kind of with a smile on their face. They showed up to tie, the Muslim showed up to win. Why do you think that difference in mentality exists? Well, I really do think, I was, although I was being kind of cute, I really do think that the Christian and the Jew show up to be nice, to let's all get along here. And I okay. do I do know this, that Muslims are highly competitive, and they take their religion and their politics very seriously. Remember, this goes back to the training. When you become an imam, they teach you, there's a process called dawah, D-A-W-A, which is how to convert Muslims and, and how to convert Christians. That's one of its aspects. Let's just deal with that. So they, they take courses in dawah, how to convert Christians. And they pass this information along not only to the imam, but also to young Muslims. So when they're in high school and they debate with Christians, they have a line of attack they use. So they're very serious about their business. And the Christian is very serious about being nice. We can be nice and not know anything. Mm -hmm. So I think that the Christians are afraid to engage the theology of the Quran. And I think they're also just in, afraid to engage. Look, if you argue against a Muslim, you'll quickly be called a bigot or a hater. And we have we now grow live in a society, Richard, which is appalling to me, which is freedom of speech is 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 on weak legs. And not only is it on its own weak legs, because people don't even really see the need to have inner the real debate anymore. So I just think that this is part of the problem we have in our society is, is that we should I believe in a robust free speech. And I think the Christians have become very timid. Yeah. By the well, way, are even worse. I've certainly noticed that with I've worked with a number of Muslim scientists, and I've been very impressed with the fact that they pay really careful attention to to the work, and take you know their their jobs extremely seriously, and it's it's very admirable. So it might be the same quality that you're talking about with these imams that show up highly educated. We could also have a second phenomena here, which is they may be immigrants, and immigrants sometimes on the first generation work harder than their succeeding. Yeah, that's true. That's it's, true. When I showed up in a university from a two-room grade school to a class of 40 people in a graduating class, man, I hit the ground running. I did nothing yeah. but study. Yeah, 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 that's true. Okay, well, listen, the, the next question at even though most of these were given to you, it sounds like it, it's written by you. It says, in Europe, I'm treated like an intelligent person, and I appear on national TV and radio. Magazines interview me. Elected officials speak to me. Party leaders arrange lectures on political Islam. And in the U.S., I made the top ten bigot list. And so, what I just want to mention to you on that, I'm not going to attempt to really answer why that's true, except to say that based on the trajectory of world events right now, I think you can feel really hopeful that very soon in Europe they will have a similar bigot list and you'll probably make it, because um, <laughs> I, I think that they're starting to outlaw any criticism of Islam or immigration issues or things like that, and they're even talking about arresting 
the leading candidate for the French uh, presidential election because she is criticizing unlimited, uh, unvetted uh, Islamic in- immigration. Well, there's the the pot is boiling more furiously in Europe, and I did write that question and submitted it to somebody to ask because okay. it really is interesting to see in this moment. On my last trip to Europe, I met with two different so-called freedom parties to discuss with them how to train them to debate about Islam in public. I could not. I couldn't get a hearing anywhere as a, at a party in the United States to do this, but in Europe they see it as far more serious. I mean, we they're much further along in the process of the hijra, that is, Islamic immigration, and they can see the consequences of it. So there's two forces at work in Europe. This, you know, there's supposedly there's a curse in Chinese, which is "damn you, may you live in an important age." Well, in Europe, it is an important age. You have more and more Muslims coming in. You do have an increasing pressure. Oh, by the way, I have a another. I'm now working on two different cases in which people are being persecuted for freedom of speech. And what they've said is true. It's just they were persecuted because the the Muslims complained about it. Mm-hmm. And I have a deal with a lady in Holland who is her attorney has reached out to me to ask questions and wants textual answers to certain issues she's raised because it turns out what she said was true. Mm-hmm. I would not have said she should speak in this way. She mentioned Muslims, and as you know, I do now never condemn Muslims. But you know, you could be right. But look at it this way, Richard. As it is, I'm one of the top ten bigots in America. But if yeah. I could be top ten in the world, now come on. I mean, that's status. I think you might make it, but you know, one step at a time. It, it's a big deal <laughs> to get it in the U.S. I, you will have to give me this. I work for my status every day. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> it's not okay, easy so, being a world beater. <laughs> well, I'm not saying really the whole world right away, but I, at least I think you could make it in Europe because that's the way it's going right now. Well, if I, if I, if I mean top 10 in Europe and top 10 in America, if I proclaim myself top 10 in the world, I've got good credit. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so the next question, um, probably not written by you, it says... Why is government and media so intent on covering up FGM? And for people that don't know, that's female genital mutilation, and we can get into what that is, because I think most people still have never heard of it. But I think, you know, you tell me if I'm correct from what we've learned so far, is that the world leaders are really displaying a desire for us to think that invading Islamic terrorists should be welcome. And if you think that they're doing something that would be unethical, other than, of course, cutting people's heads off, then it might slow down the influx, and I think that's the reason. But let me know what the real answer is. Well, there does seem to be... We, in America, we live in our own exciting times. I think, uh, without making any comment about Trump one way or the other... I think everyone would agree that he's a highly unusual president. And that's yeah. the most neutral thing I can say about it. Yeah. But what caused him to be elected partially was Islamic immigration, because mm-hmm. at least he had a clear position on that. Yes. But I think that we also have, there's a struggle going on in this country that goes beyond the idea of Muslim, and that is the whole idea of freedom of speech and freedom of ideas. Uh, I was reading my emails before uh, we came in, before you came on, and a man was, I didn't get, the, I didn't have time to finish the thing, but he was 
told by a university professor he was reading a Bible in class and he wasn't saying anything. He was just on the desk. He was reading in front of him. He told him, you'll have to put that up. They bucked it all the way up to the department head who came down and says, you're not allowed to have that book in here. Now, this was not a man who was standing up and delivering a sermon. He was reading a book at his desk. Mm-hmm. Well, this, this is the kind of thing that appalls me. I mean, because I wouldn't throw a man out of the class no matter what book he was reading. I mean, so did he did he ask them if he could stay there and and read uh, the hadith, for example, instead? Would that be okay? We don't know. What the point I'm making here is is that freedom of speech in the university system is is rapidly closing down. My favorite example of this is because I experienced it personally. I live a mile and a half from Vanderbilt University, which is my undergraduate school. Mm -hmm. There was a woman there whom I know very well. And she's a black conservative professor. She's now retiring. And at a, in a graduate seminar, she said something about, this is my position on this issue. I'm not even sure what the issue was. I think it was gay marriage. She said, this is my personal opinion, and here's why I think that. Mm-hmm. The next day, she was on the front page of the newspaper. The chancellor of the university said he would fire if he could, but she had tenure. But now get this. He, established, he announced the establishment of a telephone number you could call for, there was counselors were standing by if you had been traumatized by hearing her <laughs> idea. Traumatized oh, okay. by hearing an idea. Yeah, Richard, I know. I heard that. I mean, where have we come to when I would like for you to get, I'll listen to anybody's idea. Now, I may debate with you. I may even say it's ridiculous, but I will listen to your ideas. And you know what? When the idea is over, I'll still be standing strong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, since it would be politically incorrect at this point for them to actually be removing people's physical brain en masse, you know, someone would notice that that was an unethical operation. (laughs) And I think then the next best thing they found is to send them through the higher educational system. When I went off to school, we knew ahead of time that I would learn, you setting down, new ideas, ideas that I may not even like or approve of. I was, very curious to see what, I was very curious to see what these new ideas were. Right. And by the way, I survived all of them. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it, there's a very sophisticated program underway to make everybody hate each other and not want to understand anything. You know, I, I tend to agree with you. And, uh, but anyway, it's just... Uh, and by the way, I am so fervent on the issue of free speech, I reject hate speech laws. So you can tell that you're dealing with a wild and crazy Well, well obviously, I mean, anybody who hasn't been to higher education and has common sense left knows that if, any, if you have any hate speech laws allowed, then all you have to do is have corrupt rulers that call everything hate speech, and it's all over. Have you read 1984? Uh, yeah. Well, I think we're sort of working along that line. Because what we're trying to do here is control speech. And, I, and once you control speech, you control ideas. But anyway, right. we're, living on a, we're living in a time in which free speech is increasingly under attack. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's very far along. Well, listen, the next question, um, I'm not sure I really understand it. It says, why is the hijab a hate symbol? And I think what I've heard lately is that everybody should wear them to show that they don't have any hate, but I'm not sure what, what the <laughs> well, here's, here's what I mean when I say that. Okay. First off, the hijab, when, you, when I see one, it is an element of Sharia compliance. Okay. Do you need to explain what Sharia is? Yeah. Okay, Sharia is, 
we'll call it Islamic law, but that's only a small part of it. You have the Quran, the Sirah, the Hadith. These have implications in daily life. For instance, there is something to say about divorce in both Quran and the Sirah and the Hadith. So if you want to know what divorce is, you don't have to read all three books. Instead, the Sharia is the compilation of all of the ideas in one place about different topics. Okay. And so one of those is uh, the headscarf. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now then, the Sharia also includes what I call hate speech in the sense of the kafir is hated. Mm-hmm. And the kafir is the unbeliever. Right. So once the Sharia is there, that means you're compliant with Sharia it includes all the aspects of the Sharia, and Sharia includes hatred of the Kafir, subjugation of the Kafir, inequality of the Kafir, jihad against the Kafir. So that's what I mean when I say that it's a hate symbol in that it is a political symbol, not just a religious symbol, and the political part of Islam is the part that I object to. If you listen very carefully to what I've said before, I do not object to the religious part of Islam, I object to the political part, which is the part that involves me. And there's no aspect of Islamic politics that I like or enjoy. So when I see a hijab, and by the way, this this question came from, I was down at the farmer's market and saw on the same day a nun with a head covering. She was in full black and white. There was an African woman there and a woman in a hijab. And I says, well, here we have three head coverings, but I only have a reaction to one of them. And the reason is, is that the hijab involves me because it's a political symbol. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was in uh, so one of my European countries one time, there was a big thing about hijabs, and I said, I object to it because of this reason, it's a political symbol. And the guy said, well, so it's a political symbol. I says, well, here, let me give you a political symbol. I stood up and raised my hand in the Hitler salute. The guy mm-hmm. just about panicked. He says, you can't do that. I says, why not? He says, it's illegal in this country. I says, why? It's just a political symbol. Long yeah. pause. You've made your point, sir, but please never do that again. I said, okay, just making my point. It's a political symbol. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, hmm. All right, well, you mentioned um, hating Kafirs, but now Kafirs, just in case people haven't heard previous lectures, are the non-Muslims, right? People who don't Correct. believe in Islam. Or- that, by the way, is the Arabic term. I'm not making it up. Kafir is the... Now, I've had anglicized it. I use kafirs for the plural, but the real Arabic plural is kufar. But I'm trying to, I would like the word to become used in common because it is the precise word. Okay, okay. It's the one used in the scriptures. But actually, the kafirs are the people that God hates, right, according to the scriptures. Well, that's one of the things. He says he hates them. He also says they're filthy animals. I was talking with a Sharia jurist who's now a Christian. And he said, the filth, you have to understand, has the connotation of pus, menstrual blood, disgusting, rotten corpses. He said, the filthy, the filth part, which is Hodges, is the filth. So I'm a Kafir Hodges, filthy Kafir. Okay. And by All the right. way, this is, one of the things I asked uh, uh, Sandra Solomon when I, when I was talking with her, I says, is that actually the word you use in describing? She says, yes, that's the Arabic word. We don't use infidel. We don't use non-Muslim. We say Kafir. Right, right, okay, okay. Um, now, if, if a Muslim who's born into Islam rejects the religion and leaves, do they become a kafir or not? Yes. As a matter of fact, calling a Muslim a kafir is considered a sin within itself. Okay. The, the word is not to be thrown around loosely, but yes, you're, you're now kafir. Okay. So you, hating- deny, you deny that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. 
Right, okay. So hating kafirs is good for loving God because God hates kafirs. There's even a term for this, which means loving what Allah loves and hating what Allah hates. So right. we, have, we have the concept here of sacred hate. Got it. Okay, all right. Which is, um, just, just think about what I told you. I mean, that's a concept within itself, just like there's sacred lying, which is takia. Right, right, right. It's to further the cause, which um, is what God is trying to do on earth, is get rid of all the non-Muslims. Precisely. And as a matter of fact, the, the reason that Islam is so tenacious, one of the things you have to admire about Islam is, is they, even when they have to retreat, they're going to be back. They simply, Muslims have infinite patience, and the Quran teaches this. The, the Islamification of the world is, is a theological certainty. It's just a matter of timing. Okay. So it gives, in, it gives Muslims infinite patience and they keep grinding away at it. I say Westerners keep time with a watch. Muslims keep time with a calendar. Right, 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 right. And, and focus is really important for achieving whatever you want. So if you they have keep focus time that with lasts for, well, They have focus that lasts, has lasted for 1,400 years. And yeah. it's stronger today than it's ever been. Okay, okay. All right, so um, the next question that was given to you says, what does it mean to radicalize, de-radicalize, and what is radical? And, and what I would say about that from hearing what you've set up to now is that it, it's kind of a misleading term because if you follow the three scriptures exactly, then you are automatically what we're supposed to think of as a radical. Is that right? It is, but I object to the term. I'm real okay. big... When I was in Europe, I gave a lecture to the uh, AFD, um, um, the Freedom Party for Deutschland for Germany. Mm, okay. And what the name of the talk I gave was proper naming. Now, proper naming is much more important than we think it is because without the right words, it's hard to have the right ideas. And one of the key things in science is being able to have well-named concepts that have sharp, clear borders so that when you use the word, you know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. So I gave the idea, I said, we must use the proper terms. When I say proper terms, this is not a subjective term. I say we use the terms that are found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. The term radical is not found within the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, and therefore I reject it on that basis alone. <clears throat> well, it, and it, it's misleading because radical, you might think that somebody who's a radical member of a certain religion doesn't really follow it the way that you're supposed to, and yet... The, the people who are following Islam violently are doing exactly what Muhammad says was a normal way that you're supposed to live. You're quite right. Radical implies sort of a little doctrinal craziness or something. I mean, you're off the yeah. rails is what yeah. I I mean, you're beyond the limits. But when a jihadist, well, it's, I suddenly had the image of the uh, 12 Christians at the edge of the Mediterranean getting their heads cut off. Muhammad had men beheaded. So, beheading people is not a radical idea. Islam is normative in the sense of everything that you do that Muhammad did or say that Muhammad said is normal. It defines normal. It creates normal. In so fact, it's the minimum standard of an acceptable human life, right? Uh, you're quite correct, sir. So, therefore, it is not radical. Now, I tell you what is radical. A radical Muslim is an apostate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Somebody tries to leave. That's that's radical. 
but someone who is if when the germans invited all the the people from quote syria and i have information on the ground that of only about two in ten were syrian the other eight came from who knows where right uh, that when they now i lost my train of thought richard where was i going Okay, well, the whole whole idea was what's radical, and, and the fact that what people want us to think of as radical is just normal, good Muslims following Islam. And I wanted to bring up, in response to that, that there are a lot of things in the early part of the Quran, and maybe in some of the Hadiths, that are very friendly and inclusive and tolerant, and yes. they sound great, right? And, yes. and you have to understand what abrogation means and i thought that would be a good thing to explain well you you're quite right the one of the there's many reasons why people are puzzled in trying to read the quran one of which is the time order has been removed it used to be a story and now that's been destroyed but the other thing is it contains contradictory ideas and most people try to eliminate the contradiction my contribution to islamic scholarship was and this came because i had studied quantum mechanics i said whoa 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 Step back here. Just because two things contradict each other doesn't mean they don't reflect reality. An electron can be viewed as pure energy or pure mass. Mm -hmm. This is simply what quantum teaches us. And you say, well, wait a minute, Bill, which is it? Is it pure energy or pure mass? And the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. It has both faces and manifests itself according to whatever you try to measure it with. So that's the electron. And the same is true of the Quran. It contains ideas which are fine and contains other ideas which I hope don't get applied to me. Yeah, but, so you, you don't have to have a debate on which is true because they're both in there. They're completely contradictory. However, the one with aggressive violence and a lot of invasion, murder, rape, and things that people may not like now, those are the later parts. And according to the uh, doctrine of abrogation, the later parts w are more... Uh, they dominate the earlier parts. In other words, if there's a confusion, you follow what's later. It's what the abrogation says. It's stronger and it's better. But now listen very carefully here. It may contradict what is stronger and better, but it is still true. Because look, if you accept the thesis that the Quran is the absolute exact words of the only God of the universe, that it's perfect, there's not a comma or anything out of place, then everything in it has to be true. So when you when in the early days when it says you have your religion and I have mine let there be no compulsion in religion these are tolerant verses and they are true mm -hmm. because they can be pulled remember the um, told you I went to the interfaith gathering well they when you go to an interfaith gathering the Muslim drags out all the quotes from the Quran which come from the early Medina Meccan days by the way the correct word for a radical Muslim is a Medinan Muslim or he practices Medinan Islam not that he is a radical. Right. But but just trying to be a good Muslim, you're really supposed to hear what is the later verse and follow that. Is that not true? There's not different sects. It is true that you. it is there. Now, we need to be very clear here. Jihad is not the, it can be called the sixth pillar, but jihad is not an individual mandatory basis. Now, the other five pillars, uh, zakat, that is the the charity tax, uh, fasting during Ramadan, going to Mecca, uh, giving, uh, praying five times a day, and there's a fifth one, which somehow or another I'm forgetting. If you practice the five pillars, that, that comes from Meccan Islam. 
the jihad comes is the sixth pillar, but listen carefully. It is not individually applicable. As long as the community has the jihad going, that's all it needs to do. It's sort of like when we go to war in a nation, not everybody puts on a uniform. Only a few people do. So jihad... Yeah, but, but, but the whole community has to support the activity of the soldiers in jihad, right? Well, it does, but you can do that by just paying the zakat, because the zakat has built into it a jihad tax. Right, but, but the reason I bring that up is because uh, some people ask, when there's a terrorist attack, you know, and they're saying it's definitely for Allah, why do the Muslims not say, well, we don't believe in any of this? And it's because they're all expected to support it, to be good Muslims. Is that correct? Well, to be a good Muslim is a broad term. You can also be a good Muslim by denying that it has anything to do with violence and Islam, because this, this strengthens Islam in a political fashion. If every Muslim were a jihadist, we would not have, be having this discussion. We would be, because they, they would all go. You'd look at a Muslim, okay, well, he's a jihadist, he has to go, whether that means deportation or prison or whatever. But you see, when, there, when we have this ambiguity, you never know which, which one you're dealing with. Are you dealing with a Meccan Muslim or are you dealing with a Medinan Muslim? So what I'm saying is, is that creating uncertainty in the mind of the Kafir can also advance Islam. Mm -hmm. okay. They operate with a different ethical system, which, by the way, if you'll listen carefully, I do not condemn the ethical system. I just explain to you how it works. And the way the ethical system works, anything, listen carefully because it addresses what I, we just covering. Anything that advances Islam is virtuous and good. Anything that harms Islam is bad. So therefore, this gives a broad ethical latitude as to what to say after a, after a jihad attack. Yes, because explaining something and telling the truth, if it harms the cause, is bad. Yes. Right? Prohibited, actually. Yes. So, we, ethics in Islam depend on what is the goal. If the goal is advancing Islam, then telling a lie is not a bad thing. This is very difficult for people to get, capture because... It's a different ethical, different ethical system. And by the way, I think this is one of the reasons that people don't want to study the material because the concepts are so foreign. I tell people Islam is like studying a world that's upside down and everything has two meanings. Well, this is well, confusing to operate in. Wouldn't, wouldn't this be kind of like what they call a utilitarian philosophy? In other words, whatever achieves the goal is what you, you know, need. To I've never heard the word used in that way, but it immediately self-defines itself to me as I would say, yes. It's utilitarian. Yeah. It might be a way for people to understand it, but your your next question is very politically incorrect, so it should be Oops, interesting. I said something politically incorrect? Richard, you must be wrong. Am I, I'm sure it was somebody else, not you. But um, <laughs> it says, why are so many Muslims criminals? Because half of prisoners in France are Muslims, where Muslims are only 10%. And I, I would guess, and you can correct me, that the reason is because a lot of Muslims are criminals when defined by non-Sharia law systems. And that if it was a Sharia law system that God would prefer, they would not at all be criminals. This is all correct. The reason is, and by the way, I did not write that question. It was, it was asked of me. Okay. Um, the reason is, let me give you an example in the, in the life of Muhammad. He sent out five men with orders to kill, kidnap, and steal from a caravan. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and I have men who operate for me, and they're my crew, 
and they operate, they, if I tell them to do something, they will, and I send them out, and they rob a bank. I just mm -hmm. made that up. Right. Then they're doing what they're supposed to do. Now then, if I send them out to rob a bank, it's, it's very clear that I'm ordering, I, if they can arrest the five men, they'll also arrest me because I'm part of a criminal conspiracy, correct? Yeah. This is the way our law reads. If I hire a man to kill somebody, I'm guilty of murder. Right. Now then, but what did I do? I just told five men to go out to a bank, kill, kidnap, and bring back money. Right. Well, that's a crime. But when Muhammad did the exact same thing, its semblance to crime is pretty overwhelming. Do you, so, so therefore, the act of weakening, a, and by the way, Muhammad always attacked economic targets where possible because it enriches you and it also impoverishes the enemy. So right. therefore, when, if a man steals from a kafir, he is hurting the kafir, and this is a virtuous thing. Now, it all depends on the goal. If he steals for his own personal gain, then it's a criminal act, even under the Sharia. But if he steals in order to harm the kafir, then it's a virtuous act. The same is true of rape. The Quran is exceedingly clear on the fact that a female kafir who's captured, you can have sex with her. Mm -hmm. So therefore, what we call rape is a form of sexual slavery, which is highly accepted under Islam. So right. therefore, acts that appear criminal to us are, can be within the bounds of Medina and Quran. That is, it is simply a way of practicing jihad. So the right. reason there's so many criminals, now there's, I'm going to get it, I'm, I'm going to walk on these legs a little while longer here. So therefore, and a theological, from a doctrinal standpoint, stealing from the kafir can be good if you do it to weaken the kafir. Now, there's another reason here. There's an unseen element which plays here. There is inbreeding within a, the, the Muslim community. There is inbreeding because Muhammad married his first cousin, therefore it's Sunnah, and also in the list of people you can marry, first cousins are not included in the list. So therefore, there's a great deal of inbreeding within Islamic communities. One of the consequences of inbreeding, aside from sometimes structural enormities, which look bad and don't function, is a lowered IQ and an in increasing tendency for insanity and criminal behavior. So therefore, we can have consequences of the Islamic ability to have inbreeding as a good thing. This can also tend to create more criminals as well. Here's an example of this. If you take someone from Pakistan and you take somebody from Northwest India, Genetically, they're the same people, except one is circumcised and one is not. Why? Because Pakistan used to be Hindustan. Mm -hmm. But yet when you, these immigrants from Pakistan go to England and the immigrants from Hindustan, India, go to England, there's almost no such thing as a Hindu in prison serving for felony crimes. Okay? Right. Whereas the same figures that we have in France, and I forget what they were, they're 10% of the population and half the prison population, the same is true in areas where there's large degrees of Muslim. <clears throat> so therefore, the same behavior is there. You have, you have a tendency, to, jihad can be practiced and it's, and it's not a crime. And the other is, inbreeding produces people who are, tend to be more criminal, as well as dysfunctional in other ways. Right. But certainly, even, even if... It's all very high intelligence level. If you're following orders from the trilogy of scriptures, and they say to do things that the other society considers criminal, then you've got two different definitions. One says it's criminal, the other says it's heroic. Well, take 9-11, for instance, which, by the way, caused Muslims all around the world to jump up and down and clap their hands. To us, it was a criminal act of war. 
but to if you have the Meccan, if you have the Medinan outlook on Islam, which is then it was just jihad, right, and it's a right. virtuous act. Right. This is a broad gap between what we, you know, they like to say we're a multicultural society. How do you incorporate someone for whom murder is not a crime but a virtuous act? How do you live with someone who is, therefore, what we would call a criminal, and yet we would we'd be called otherwise a virtuous person? Yeah, there's a problem in those two systems uh, going together. And by the way, it's like driving on, do you, in America, we have the custom of you stop at the red light and go at the green light. What if we imported people or people came here and said, no, 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 on green you stop and on red you go. It's like, wait a minute, you have to do it our way. No, we, yeah. need, to, we need to compromise here. But which is it? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's an excellent analogy. It's kind of like what's what's going on now, and it's it's what's being encouraged by the people who are bringing in large numbers of the people that will uh, see it differently. You so, see, to some and, degree, I'm, I'm look. I, I look. I eat all kinds of food. I know all kinds of people, but we have to have a common mode of doing things. Do we drive on the right hand side of the road or the left hand side of the road? Well, in America, we drive on the right hand side of the road. We're mm-hmm. headed to the day when somebody will have a lawsuit saying, "No, no, no! I'm from England, therefore you're being you're you're being culturally oppressive." Yeah. We need common standards. We need common vision. Doesn't mean we all have to think alike, but we need to have some things that are common. Yeah. And with Islam, there's not a lot that's common. So, so it's not it's not hateful to say that you have to drive on the right side of the road because otherwise everybody's going to be dying. Well, you know what, Richard? Wait another ten years, and I think you'll probably be arrested for saying that. It, uh, yeah, well, I don't think it's going to take 10 years. I think there are at least don't go to a university and say that. No, absolutely right. Um, okay, next question is, what is an Islamophobe? And I think that I would say, um, technically, it's somebody, phobe mean, is from phobia, that, that's a fear, and it means somebody who's afraid of Islam. And um, I think that's what it is. But what do you think? Well, of course, to be phobic, it means you're a little bit, weak in the brain in some way or your personality that is a phobia is an unreasonable fear okay now so therefore but let's not focus on the unreasonable part let's focus on the islam part what is islam islam is a doctrine found in the quran the seer and the hadith that's what mm-hmm. it is right now then that's the doctrine of islam inside the doctrine of islam muhammad ordered that people who were intelligentsia and artists who opposed him were to be assassinated Mm-hmm. Who will kill Ashraf, who has offended Allah and his prophet? I will, Muhammad, but I will need to deceive him. May I do so? Yes, deceive him. Ashraf was a Jewish poet who wrote a poem that mocked Muhammad. Muhammad. So therefore, it is, it is totally copacetic to kill critics of, of Islam. Well, I qualify to be killed. Should I be afraid of a, a standing assassination order? Well, I say to be afraid of that is not a sense of wackiness, but a sense of the fact that my instincts are working. As yeah. a friend of mine who was a U.S. Marine and served in Vietnam, he says, fear is very good. Fear will keep you alive. So therefore, I am Islam fearful, but I am not Islamophobic. Do I make okay. my point? Yeah, be- yeah, because the politically correct forces that are psychologically engineered by our rulers right now are saying that you, sh- you must be arrested for criticizing Islam, because you're by definition an Islamophobe if you do that, even if you're... By the way, do you understand that you're stating now what's going on in the Canadian law system? They're they're trying to get a law passed under Trudeau in which it is against Canadian law to be Islamophobic. 
even though they've never really defined the term. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I'm not surprised because, you know, Canada is, is also very closely connected to England and the same thing is happening there. And in fact, uh, the new mayor of London, who's a, a Muslim, is gradually, as, as I understand it, and you can tell me if this is correct, implementing elements of Sharia law already within the city. He is. And he's also said something very interesting. He says, we just have to understand that terrorism is part of modern life. Right. Yeah, you have to live with it and not worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's just part of life. You know, like there's people die on Saturday night because they were drinking, driving a car. So that's just part of life. Yeah, I think that's the uh, supposedly centrist candidate in uh, France for president is saying the same thing. It, it's just something that you need to relax and live with at this point. And by the way, he also said this. He said, I've never seen any French art. And he said, I don't understand what French civilization would be. There's a man who I don't not want running my country. Yeah, that's interesting qualification, huh? Um, okay, the next question says, how, how can a Muslim condemn ISIS? And, and to me, I think the only way I could think how they could do that, and, and honestly, is because if they condemn ISIS, it gives ISIS cover to progress farther without being uh, recognized for what it is. You know, there's another thing, too. My experience with Muslims is, is that most of them do not know a great deal about Islamic doctrine, and nor are they encouraged to do so. The Quran is, is a poor source of information because it's been made deliberately hard to read and deliberately nonsensical. The reason I say that is, is the original Quran told a story. The story, the Quran you have that you buy at the bookstore, and I'm looking up at my shelf and seeing several of them, does not have a story in them. So it's very difficult to extract knowledge from the Quran. The hadith are daunting because there's 7,000 of them. Mm -hmm. So most people are not, I'm, I'm the only person I've ever met who's read all 7,000 hadith of Bukhari. Don't want to do it again, but I did it once. And so what I mean by this is, is that Muslims tend to just believe what the imam told them. And right. if that is whatever he tells them is what they believe, and they don't have a deep knowledge of Islam. I'm told by, a, by an Iranian jurist who is, was a top jurist in Iran, he's now a Christian, he said 80% of the imams know very little about Islam at all. Yeah, that's amazing, um, which nobody is going to really realize unless they have read all of all three scriptures, right? I maintain that if Islam is the Sunnah of Muhammad and the Quran, that you need to read the Quran and you need to read the Sunnah of Muhammad, which is precisely defined as the Hadith and the Sirah. Right. I mean, I'm just being practical here. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, okay, another question that comes up for you is, why does the left love Islam? And I, I think, you know, it, it's a little bit nebulous how to exactly define the left in Western society, but I think right now their, their common element with Islam is eradication of individual freedom. And I think that's where the alliance would be. Uh, they both want both the, both the left and the and the George Soros leftist uh, have a utopian concept of building a look. The greatest evil is done in the name of good. I, f I finally figured that out when I was young. I was told that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I thought, oh no, that's not true. Well, it is. The communists, for all that they killed in in for all the Ukrainians that died in starvation under Stalin, Stalin was trying to do good. He was trying to build a better world. 
Mm-hmm. So the left wants a better world in which they want to destroy primarily individual freedoms. And the, the Muslims want to do the same thing. So mm-hmm. the Muslim and the left look at each other and say, hey, we both want to tear down society and rebuild a perfect society, so let's work together to do that. Now, the left, unfortunately, doesn't study much history. Uh, I remember one time talking with an avid communist, and I said, what, how many people have died under communism? She says, oh, no one's died under communism because real communism has never been tried. So I said, you mean communist China and the Soviet Union? Those weren't communists? She says, oh, no, no, that was Marxist-Leninism. I says, okay. Yeah, communism's just where everybody's really nice to each other. I gather. I did. I, I must say, with I sort of looked at her. I just sort of went, "Okay, nice day, isn't it?" I didn't try to carry <laughs> much of a conversation. I mean, there, there are limits to my discussability. There's, but, there's a question after that that um, just asks why you went from studying science to getting into um, what this questioner calls faith issues. Well, it goes back to a day in my life, which I can still remember. I was raised in extreme poverty and in a very isolated part of the world. I grew up in Appalachia. I grew up on a seven people in a four-room shack without running water, telephone, father, car. We were poor. One of the chief things I loved about going off to Vanderbilt University was they had indoor plumbing. That sounds (laughs) funny, but I mean, it really is true. Yeah, no, that's a big advantage. It really is. Yeah. And And, uh... Now, why, now, I've lost my train of thought for the second well, time. Well, remember, the question was why you went from science. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So then, at Vanderbilt University, where I heard many shocking ideas, they didn't traumatize me. I was mm-hmm. in the school bookstore one time, and I picked up a book of Asian art. Now, in the house that I grew up in, there was not one piece of art anywhere. Well, that's not true. There's an ancestral portrait, which could be called art. And I looked at these paintings from China, and they were so different from the paintings that I'd seen in the West. I asked this question. I said, why are these paintings so different? This is a culture, this was my instinctual reaction was, these are people who had a different view of life. What is their view of life? Well, I, I went from art into studying Taoism and Buddhism. So in the same way, I looked. I began to realize that since art sh- was shaped by religion, and by the way, I just came before this, there's a museum exhibit here in Nashville on Tibetan art, and indeed, the art does reflect a worldview. So I became very interested in how Religion affected history, which is a huge topic. And so that's how I started studying uh, not only other religions, but also Islam because of the way it shapes history. So therefore, I view history, I view religion as not only the answer to the three questions, who am I, why am I here, and where am I going, but also I see it as a civilizational force. You can believe in Buddhism or Hinduism or not, but you must admit they shape the history of India and they shape the history of the East. So without judging in the religious part of it, which is what happens after you die, I'm very interested in how religions affect culture. And this is interesting because in Europe now, there are even some atheists who are going looking at the Islam thing and going, you know what? I'm an atheist and I don't like Christianity, but I must admit this. It was Christianity, the history of Christianity that created the atheists that I am today and the freedom of speech that I enjoy. (laughs) And so therefore, there are some atheists who are looking and going, you know, we may reject history. We may reject religion Christianity as a religion, but as a civilizational force, we have to admit the fact that it did help to create the West, and there's some parts about that that we enjoy. So we, I'm interesting to find that there are even his atheists who are beginning to say that religion does shape civilization, and that's my interest in Islam. I have no interest in the, the, uh, the theological part of Islam. I'm not interested in Islamic heaven. I find it 
not anyway it's a very different view of what paradise is yeah and uh so so anyway i study religion in order to see its impact in history and by the way if you listen to me when i condemn christian leadership i do not condemn their theological leadership i condemn them because they're not willing to create to defend the civilization that which supports christianity in the face of an ideology that would attack them when was that that you started studying religion like that repeat the question please when did you start studying religion to see what was going on with it in history and well the first time was in the books of art and that's literally how it started i mean i can still remember the day picking up that book and saying whoa this is different what created this difference so i've had a long interest in the effect i was raised in a very religious household so i'm used to the concept of religion i'm used to the idea of having sacred text Mm -hmm. so anyway no i was just personally curious when you about what year it was when you started that study well i'm 76 now and this was like uh 60 years ago okay so that was a long time oh i was uh, richard i'm so old i remember when the dead sea got sick (laughs) okay well um (laughs) all right so i guess if we have your permission then this will be the first time of exposing your true age and that should get us a lot of interest in the listeners and i think it should yeah, it'll be very enthusiastic. Okay, um, other than that, let's see how far we can get with these other questions that people have sent in for you. And um, All right, what about the reception of your talks, either in Europe or in the U.S., from people in the Muslim religion? How do they relate to your, you know very objective view, just bringing out things that Muhammad actually said. What's the reaction among Muslims? Well, actually, now there are, of course, the usual criticisms of I'm a complete idiot, uh, I'm an agent of the devil, and other such things, but those I get from not only Muslims, but from uh, people who are consider themselves progressive. Right, right. So, but I've had Muslims contact me who are a little confused about who I am and what it is about. Uh... Because my neutral stance, for instance, I say things like Amer- uh, Muhammad was the greatest military genius who ever lived because he gave a new kind of war, civilizational war. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a Muslim, that sounds like, wow, this guy's really praising Muhammad. And, right. it, and I really am. So I've also had others. I had one uh, Muslim bookstore inquire if they could sell my books. Mm, interesting. So. Okay. My neutral stance uh, serves me well. Yeah, Because exactly. I didn't do it to please the Muslims. Actually, I did the neutral stance not to please the Muslims, but just because it's my, the way I'm trained as a scientist. Yeah, it keeps your vision clear, actually, about what you're discovering. So, um, let's see. Another question. It's a little bit like one you already answered, but somewhat different. It says, due to your scientific background, your books and lectures are based on statistical analysis of holy text of Islam. The religion that emerges from this is full of violence and contempt for unbelievers, and actually that should be for kafirs. How are your publications being received by Muslim groups? So that's really about your books as opposed to the talks. Is it the same response, do you think? Yes. Okay. I mean, I've had, I've had Muslims come to my lecture. Here, here's, here's a reception by a Muslim. I was in Canada. Mm-hmm. And a woman who gave the appearance of being Muslim came to one of my talks. And this man persuaded me to do three talks in a row. Okay. Which I wouldn't do anymore. But anyway, on the first talk, this 
woman took furious notes and asked question after question, which I answered. Mm-hmm. Then on the second talk, she gave, took a few notes and asked only one or two questions. On the third talk, she took practically no notes and asked no questions. Then after the, it was over and the, the room began to empty, she came over to me, extended her hand and said, I want to thank you. She says, I told the mayor of this town, Calgary, that you should not be allowed to be here because you're a bigot and a hater. Mm-hmm. But she says, I must admit that your talk here has been very neutral. And as a matter of fact, you have given me questions, which I must now ask my religious teacher. You have caused me to have original thoughts. Wow, that's nice. And I thought that that, was, that, that could summarize my goal. Yeah, that could, should be really satisfying, because if you do oh, I, that even for a few people, it's incredible. Well, I felt like I'd hit a, an emotional home run, because as I say, she was like, you've caused me to think about new questions about my religion. Yes. Yeah. And she so said, and you never, he says, and you never insulted, you never condemned. You just said, here's what it is. Yeah, yeah, amazing. You're just in, encouraging people to be clear and to look at things for whatever they are, which is, in, you know, that, that would be revolutionary compared to just memorizing who to hate and who to fight with. So. Now, let me give you another story, though, <laughs> yeah. which is at a university, all right? So mm-hmm. we know this is going to be a joke. I hate to say that, but it's true. Well, I wish it were, but it's pretty serious, actually. Anyway, so I gave a talk at Vanderbilt University, and it was I was invited there by a conservative student organization, which I was, I was amazed they were allowed to exist on campus, but I guess they were the token conservatives. Right. And I, it was the first time I'd ever given a talk based on my statistical analysis. When the talk was over, a man stood up in the back of the room and started screaming at me, Throwing his hand out, you're a racist, you're a hater, you should never be allowed on any, ca- on any campus. Mm-hmm. And what is the racism in that sign behind you? And I looked behind, and it was just a sign that said, Youth for Western Civilization. Well, of course, for him, anyone who would be for Western Civilization is an obvious racist. Right. Anyway, it turns out when it was all over, <laughs> I found out the man was the head of the Islamic Studies Department. <laughs> <laughs> But it went further than this. So there was a young lady there whose parents were big fans of mine, and she, being a college, at this time, junior, Uh sort of viewed me with some trepidation because I was politically incorrect. Right. So the man who was the head of the Middle East Department came around to the door to waylay me yet one more time when I left. Yeah. And she said to me, she says, Dr. Whatever his name is, says, you came and gave a lecture on Muhammad and the Jews when I, to my uh, introduction to Judaism class. And the story you told was very different from what this man told. He says, well, these hard shell, are they not? He says, these conservatives and right wingers, she says, I don't want to hear about right wing. I don't want to hear about left wing. I want to hear about Muhammad and the Jews. Good, good. Wow. And she, she, he looked at her, turned on his heel and strode away. <laughs> in that moment, this young lady suddenly went from being like, well, my parents like him to like realizing the Vanderbilt University lied to me, and this man is telling me the truth. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's some reactions from those within the university. So that's why you've con- continued to give some talks, I guess, right? Because there are some good results. Well, I, you know, I, I always... Look, I'm obsessed with this material. <laughs> you know, yeah. here I am doing an interview. I write books. I write letters. I'm helping prepare a legal case in the Netherlands now for a woman who criticized Islam in public. 
I think that this is the great issue of the 21st century. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, I can certainly see the importance. On, and the, the next question, it kind of points that out from another angle. Someone asks, are Muslims allowed to lie to non-Muslims? And I would just su- suggest, having listened to you and read your books, that that's actually considered a virtue if it's to advance Islam, but you can tell me if that's correct. Well, that is quite correct. In Islam, morals are centered around the goal. So if the goal is to lie to me in order to defend Islam or advance Islam, then the lie is good. Now then, let's be particular here. A Muslim should not lie to me if we're selling me a used car because that is not for the gain, that's for his own personal gain. Mm, So lie should be told only for the moral purpose of advancing Islam. Now there are also two other cases to lie, but they are not to Kafirs, but to Muslims. A Muslim can lie to another Muslim. If it's a white lie, they'll bring peace to the family. And a wife and a husband can lie to each other to make the other one feel better. I see. Okay. 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 So I'm not sure. Why, I'm not sure how this works out in marriage counseling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, not just marriage counseling, but also immigration counseling, because if people are trying to figure out. Who are the terrorists, uh, you know, committing terrorism for Muhammad, for example, which means following the three scriptures precisely because that's recommended. Then if a Muslim is allowed to lie about it, you can't do it by asking a potential Muslim terrorist to say anything against Islam because he or she can do it if it's to advance the cause. Well, let me give you an example. I was just reading an article in the New York Times of all places, so I know this is all true. Oh, right. It was in the Sunday magazines. Someone gave it to me because there was a scholar in France who opposes Islam, and this was unusual for the New York Times to report this. Okay. But anyway, he reported attending a group of sociologists and psychologists who were dealing with jihadis in prison. And they said that one of the things is they're beginning to discover their duplicity. Since some of the jihadis in prison are now shaving their beards and no longer practicing Islam. Now, this is interesting, but part of Al-Qaeda's directives to its jihadis is, do not look like you're, you know, with the robes and the beard. Shave (laughs) your face. Dress modern. Don't go to the mosque at all. Wow. Now, this is all acceptable, because if it's for the purpose of jihad, remember Muhammad Atta and the crew on 9-11 spent their... uh, night before 9-11 in the titty bars drinking booze mm-hmm. and people right. were like well these weren't real Muslims because they were hanging out with whores and drinking booze mm-hmm. but here's the thing these men knew that according to the scriptures tomorrow morning they would die as martyrs shaheed and so as a result they would go directly to heaven here's the critical point all sins would be forgiven and any right. deception is possible for instance there's a hadith about you're not supposed to dye your hair but there's mm-hmm. an exception unless it's for the purpose of jihad. So this was really the big chance for them to do all the things that they had wanted to do but couldn't before. Yes. And so as a result, they could commit any sin because all sins would be forgiven. Right, 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 right. Blanket forgiveness as long as they're serving the system. Yes. It's very practical. What was the word you used earlier in the discussion about utilitarian ethics? Yeah, exactly. That's a a well-recognized system of ethical belief, actually. Not not for just religion, but other things. 
Ooh, scary. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. recognized by psychology. So, okay, and then another question here is how Muslims should treat other Muslims, and I think the answer to that probably is that you should treat them uh, as as you would want to be treated, unless, of course, they're a subservient class like women. But other than that, if they're Muslims, you should. A Muslim treat is a brother to every other to every Muslim. Now, I presume this would also go beyond the male brother, but also to sisterhood. Muslims are very fond of using the term brother and sister, okay. and uh, so they're supposed to treat each other well. If if that if that were a universal rule, life would be very different. Right. 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 Okay. So. Um, next one says, Prophet Muhammad was a political leader as well. How did, he fi- how did he fight with his enemies? Was he an honorable leader? I found that question, I find that question to be a little interesting. Was he an honorable leader? Because the term honor has many meanings to different people. Right. To his own people, he was considered the ultimate human being. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you read the Hadith, I mean, it's, it, it sounds like the disciples uh, talking about Jesus. There was no, f- there's no flaw yeah. within him. There's 91 verses in the Quran which state that Muhammad is the perfect human being and that he is perfect in every way. Every Muslim is to follow exactly what he says. Mm-hmm. Have sex like he had sex, be the father he was, be the husband he was, be the military leader he was. Yes. Yeah, okay. So, from the definition that was acceptable within the religion, he was 100% honorable. Yes, I, I didn't draw the final conclusion there. Thanks for doing that. But yes, he was, he was the perfect human being. Right. He was the perfect human being. Right, okay. Um, and then the next one says, how many people were killed in carrying out the service of Allah or, you know, by obeying Muhammad? You know, I don't know the ultimate answer. I know the largest that there were, he participated in 95 acts of violence. These are all listed in the Sirah. So he participated in 95 acts of violence. The one act that created, to my knowledge, the most death was the killing of the Jews in Medina, which was 800 male Jews in one day. Mm -hmm. But he was involved in many battles. And I don't really know the death toll of his own personal behavior. I'll have to plead ignorance here. Yeah, I don't know if they meant direct or including indirect. Well, now let's move, if we now move in, one of the reasons that I say Muhammad is the greatest military leader who ever lived was not only did he create a new form of war, which is civilizational war, and by that I mean Muhammad was able to use, and they do today, headscarves, food, uh, whether you shake a man's hand or not, uh, all of these things become elements of advancing Islam. There's a, I just spoke in Switzerland, well, it was a month or two ago, and one of the things that upset the Swiss was, it is traditional that the students shake the professor's hand, and not only the professor, but even the student's hand in school, and this is just considered a mark of respect for the teacher. Mm-hmm. But the female students would not shake a woman's hand, and if the woman were a male, to, if, the woman were, if the teacher were a woman, they wouldn't shake her hand either. Okay. So, here we have the simple act of a handshake is made into pressuring the Swiss society into accepting the rules of Islam. So therefore, he was he used everything in, that is available in civilization, clothing, food, everything. Marriages, what's justice. So therefore, it, Islam advances on many, many fronts. The other thing is, 
is that this form of war he created is perpetual and eternal. Today, no one dies for Muhammad, for uh, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Caesar, no matter what the Genghis Khan. No right. one dies for these great military leaders of the past, but someone died today because of Muhammad. And indeed, the code of war that goes with Islam is that there will be jihad until every mouth proclaims there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is his prophet. Right. And, and why was it that the students didn't want to shake hands with the teachers? Then uh, the Sharia, a woman, a man and a woman don't touch. And what if it's the not wanting to shake hands with a woman teacher? If it's a if it's a woman's well, a man's not supposed to shake a woman's hand. Period. Okay, so if, if it's the opposite sex student, then they don't do it. Right. Okay, got it. I presume uh, a woman could shake another woman's hand if the woman yeah. were a professor. Right. Right. Okay, that's what I was wondering. So then um, the next question said. Was Muhammad a criminal in the understanding of the people living in his times? And I would guess, from what I read of you, that originally, when he started really condemning people for being members of the wrong religion, that they were all going to hell, um, they, it was going in the direction of him being considered not acceptable. But then when people converted, then he was not, certainly not a criminal at all, but What's the right answer on that? There's only one case in which there is a uh, charge of criminality by the people around him. And that was, of all things, when he attacked a Jewish tribe, he could not drive them out of their fortress, and so they were date palm farmers. Okay. And he cut down their date palms and burned them. And the okay. Arabs said, you're a war criminal, Muhammad, because Arab war law meant that you did not destroy crops. Okay. So this is the source of one of the puzzling verses in the Quran where Muhammad is being told by Allah that it was okay to burn the palm trees. Now, when you're reading the regular Quran, you get at a bookstore, this verse leaps off the page and you're left with like, palm trees? Who's palm trees? It's but taken out of context, yeah. Right. The, the context is his attack in burning the, tre the trees of the Jews. Okay. So, that, so that's the only time I know... You have to understand that amongst the Arabs, there was a tradition of raids. So he was viewed early on as sort of like just a highway robber, but of a known type. Now, there is something interesting about his arrangement. It was traditional in, the, in Arabia that the leader of a raiding band took 25% of the cut. That is, that was his percentage of the take off the top. Okay. But Muhammad lowered it to 20%. So he was considered on this basis a generous man. Yeah. Now, let, me, let me say something here about Muhammad, which is a virtuous position. Mm -hmm. That is, Muhammad was never in, in uh, never loved money. All the money he got, he put back into horses and jihad and armor. Mm -hmm. His own wives complained about the fact that they didn't have enough household expenses. Okay. So Muhammad wore old clothes, patched his own clothes. He was a man who was not enamored of money at the personal level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He, but now he was as a government head. He took money and used it for jihad. But okay. he was he was not he was not he was not easily influenced by money. Having said that, he also set up a system whereby that money was used to strengthen the hearts of those who are weak. As a matter of fact, that's one of the purposes of the zakat, one of the seven purposes. That is, if you have a brand new Muslim, you can give them money in order to enhance their liking of Islam. And he did this. Okay. So there's a tradition where today, 
where money can be used to influence people to convert to Islam or if they have converted to become stronger in Islam. Okay, okay. Well, and, and I guess that certainly applied to the people who joined him in the raids because they shared in what they got. They got 80% of the, of the take. Right. As a matter of fact, this created after a while a problem. Towards the end of his career, the, the men had, the Muslims who had at one time had been very poor became so wealthy that they're like, you know, it, wealth produces its own laziness, as you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've got enough money, you don't need to work hard. So, And by the way, killing people and taking the risk of getting killed is hard work and dangerous work. Yeah, so there is uh, there's exhortations in the Quran about, you know, you you say you don't like fighting, but Allah knows what's better for you than you do. You need to go out and kill. Yeah. So yeah. Well, and, and in the instance that you were talking about with cutting down the palm trees of the Jews that they couldn't get out of their their fortified uh, position, what was what led to them attacking the Jews in that in that uh, compound in the first place? This is not very clear. When Muhammad came to Medina, it was half Jewish. There were three tribes of Jews. Now, these Jews are not Jews in the sense that you and I would recognize them of today, but nevertheless, they had rabbis. They were very Arabic, nor did they use Jewish names. It appears as though, now this is my speculation, that they were Arabs who converted to Judaism. So, there were three tribes of them, but, but when he took them down one at a time, it's interesting that the Jews never got together in alliances to fight Muhammad. And after he'd killed all the Jews, here's the reason, by the way, he took out killing the Jews. Their rabbis said to him, you're not a prophet. Mm-hmm. Well, who, that, you didn't tell Muhammad he wasn't a prophet. He took umbrage with that. Right. And so he killed all three of them. And at this point, he then became the enemy of the Jews. And uh, he attacked not only the Jews in uh Medina, but he attacked the Jews in Kaibar, Kaibar, and went to attack those in Ladakh, and they surrendered without a fight. Okay. So Muhammad objected to the Jews because they said that he was not a prophet, and they did not become Muslims. Now, there were two or three Jews who did become Muslims, and they're highly praised. As I recall, one of them is even mentioned in the Quran. Okay, because they, they, they realized what the real understanding was, and they followed it. Right. Okay. And then uh, someone asked about what's the definition of good in Islam, and, and it seems to me that it's probably anything that advances Islam, but what would you say on that? I'd say, Richard, you've been listening to me talk. Okay, good. Um, then someone says, uh, what is permitted according to Islam that is forbidden, in, and this goes back to basics, really, but what, what's permitted according to Islam that is forbidden in contemporary Western society? Well, marrying your relatives is one of them. There's a massive problem with inbreeding in Islam. Muhammad married a cousin, and in the in the Quran, I think it's in Surah 4, women, there's a list of who you can marry and not marry, and, mm-hmm. first cousin, and cousins are not mentioned at all. So you can not only marry a cousin, you can also marry the child of your brother. This creates big, big problems. Yeah, so the, so the problem biologically is that there's not enough diversity in the gene pools to make the uh, children strong and resistant to various things. And Well, it's, uh, it, this is true in everybody's gene pool. I mean, when you start marrying your relatives, you can wind up with some weird diseases. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Um, let's see, the next question someone asks, how big, how large a part of Islamic doctrine 
refers to non-Muslims, and I know you have specific statistics on this. Well, the entire doctrine devotes 51% of it. The reason I counted this up was that I've read the scriptures of most religions, Mm -hmm. Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, Judaism. I studied Torah at an Orthodox synagogue for a year and a half. Okay. So now that when I and I started studying Islam at the end of my studies of what I'll call the great religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's minor religions that I haven't studied, for, okay. and some of them don't really have books, such as shamanism. Okay. But when I started reading this books on Islam, the Quran, for instance, I was really struck with how much time was spent dealing with the non-believer. I mean, it's just page after page was like condemning the unbeliever, the kafir, they have a special name for them. And so after a while, I just sort of like, well, let's measure this. And the reason I did it was, is that it was such a contrast. For instance, if you read Buddhist sutras, which are Buddhist scriptures, Shakyamuni Gautama, called the Buddha, didn't spend any time trash-talking people who were not Buddhist, other than saying that they're living a life of suffering and that suffering can cease. Mm -hmm. But he didn't condemn them, mock them, make fun of them. He didn't hate them. That was the weirdest thing. Isala hates the Kafir and and plots and schemes against the Kafir and deceives the Kafir. And I'm like, wait a minute. I got this picture of humanity as an ant farm. And I'm the and I'm God, okay? I mean, here's my little ant farm. Yeah. For me to plot and scheme against the ants is like, are you kidding? All I gotta do is pour hot water down the hole and they're dead. Right. So Yeah, you it, don't get all upset and just start hating No, people. no, no. I mean and I don't hate the ants. It's, it's right. like, look, I, I set up the little ant farm in my own room to watch their cleverness and how they live and, and work in the tunnels. Yeah. So why would I hate them? Yeah, but, it's, so, it's a strange situation. So that was what caused me to say, well, and then the same thing when you got to the Sirah, his biography, just about everything was about the Kafir. It wasn't. We could imagine another Islam in which Muhammad, instead of going out and robbing caravans and condemning people who don't believe in him as a prophet, would mm-hmm. be giving lectures of virtue, lectures of ethics, efforts to help other people. But this yeah. is not what happened. For instance, for a Christian to help a non-Christian is considered a meritorious thing. The same is true in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So, But in Islam, instead of preaching virtue and ethics of the normal sense in which people are treated as a brother. Instead, we have a God saying, you know, a Muslim is a brother to another Muslim. Well, that's a, I mean, it's just so different, Richard. It is so different. As a matter of fact, I maintain there's only two religions in the world. That one in which believes that other human beings are equal and should be treated well. And by the way, I have friends who are atheists who fit into that category. And this is more peculiar, squirrely definition. And then there are those religions which hate those outside of it. Well, Islam is the prime example of that. And all the other religions, to some degree or another, live well with other people. Right, right. So if you look at where this comes from, uh, I think you would go back to Mecca and actually fairly early on after the period of getting along really well when when the angel or the supernatural being that Muhammad was working with started telling Muhammad to let everybody else know they were going to hell because they were wrong. Right? Yeah. And so that took a certain amount of attention to, to tell them that 
what was wrong with what they believed and why they had to change. But the, the, let me progress a little further into the oddity of the dishatefulness of the Kafir. Okay. There is the best writing in the Quran is hell. The language is poetic, very colorful, very picturesque. Mm-hmm. Now, all in a bad way. It's like a horror show. Right, right. I think I counted up sometime there were some 120 references to hell. And when I say a reference, I don't mean a verse. There could be a whole paragraph. There's usually a whole paragraph. Okay. When you look carefully, there's always the reason is given why the Kafir is in hell. Over 90% of the reasons the Kafir in hell is not for some moral failing. It's not that he killed somebody. It's not that he raped somebody. Not that he stole, lied. Those are very few references where people go to hell for what I'll call moral failure. Instead of Islamic hell, the reason you go to hell is you say Muhammad is not the prophet of Allah. Okay, I so claim that's more of a political idea than a religious Your crime is that you have the wrong religion, basically. Yes. Okay. Well, the crime really, no, the crime is not the wrong religion. What it says is you do not accept Muhammad as the prophet of Allah. That's the crime. Well, right, but that is the, keeping the wrong religion because the only right one is to say that um, you belong to Muhammad, that he's the prophet of Allah, and that Allah is the only God, etc. But there's a, subtle, there's a subtle point here. The entire Meccan Quran is really a PR release on the fact that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. And if you don't believe that, you're going to hell. In the, in the Medinan Quran, the theme is, if you don't believe Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, you can be killed. And so that's the major difference between the two. The other thing is, that there's very little discussion of hell in the, in, the, in the Medinan Quran. There's no reason to have hell in the, after, where you suffer after death. In Medina, you suffer in this life, not the next life. Okay, okay, okay. Although it's assumed that after you get killed in this life, which is really the best thing for you because you're in the wrong religion anyway, that after that, you're probably going to hell too, right? Oh, you're going, you, well, actually, you don't go straight to hell, I started to say. You have to wait for Judgment Day to go to hell. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. So you have to be dead for a while. <laughs> well, until the Judgment Day. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay, all right. And then the, quest, the person is asking, what is the place of atheists in Islam? And it, it seems to me from what you've been saying that those are the people, you know, just who need They're to be converted. the worst converted. of the worst. I have, I have many friends who don't have a religion at all. They would call themselves, I think, an atheist. Without, I'm not trying to be pejorative here. Yeah, well, they atheist literally just means you don't think that there's a God, that's all. Right. So, I'm, I'm not making a judgment here. They would, I mean, I'm, nor am I calling people names. This is just how they would describe themselves. Right. They think because of this, they know that, Islam hates the Jew and the, and the Christian, and they think, well, that's okay. I'm neither Jew nor Christian, so I get off scot-free here. What they don't understand is, is that the lowest rung of all is that of the atheist. The okay. Quran gives both the polytheist, the Jew and the Christian, a little nudge of goodness because they believe in God. But for the atheist, they're the worst of the worst of the worst. Okay. All right. It, it really brings up a question to me, too, because the, the Muslim people I know, I, I'm not, you know, in terrorist circles. I know a lot of Muslims who are great people that I really look up to. And, and I'm wondering, since most Muslims are, are, I think, very religious and they have services from, you know, in mosques and they pray a lot, things like that. Do they have different services that don't emphasize the violent passages in the scriptures? Oh, Sure. 
But now there is something a little violent, if you want to call it that, or pejorative in there. A Muslim prays five times a day. <clears throat> They're the shortest, no, it's not the shortest. The first surah, surah one, has seven verses. These seven verses are repeated 18 times a day. Now, I don't know exactly how it works out. I've never studied Islamic prayer. But I'm told they repeat these seven verses 18 times a day. These seven verses curse the Christian and damn the Jew. Okay, and you're saying that all Muslims have to repeat that? All Muslims repeat these prayers. In which okay. the Christian is damned for having veered from the true path, and okay. the Jew is damned because they have earned the anger of Allah. I'm forget now exactly why that's true, probably because they rejected Muhammad. But... Uh, Okay, so, so I'm just saying so we, that the best of Muslims prays many times a day, condemning the Jew and the Christian. That's just built into the whole business and can't be avoided. Okay, so we have a pretty high degree of certainty at this point that even the ones that are, are really great people, people that I know that are Muslim, they still repeat these phrases every day about how bad the Jews and the Christians. Yes, if they pray five times a day, these prayers are built into it. I see. Okay, interesting. So I want it. You know, at some point, maybe we can ask Sandra when she comes on. But um, at that some, would be a great it, question to answer, ask her. It, yeah, because I'd I'd really like to know how the Muslims that are wonderful people, in my opinion, the ones that I know, how they reconcile their general benevolence toward other people with reciting this stuff every day. I would. You know, that's a question I've never asked, and I, but I will ask it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe you'll run into somebody that you can find that out from, too. Um, uh, most prayers in Islam are ritual prayers. That is, they're, when I, well, they're just ritual prayers. An example of Christianity might be repeating the Lord's Prayer. Right, but, but uh, I mean, you are really supposed to be paying attention to what you're praying, right? Well, yes. <laughs> there is that, isn't there? <laughs> I, I'm not saying it's done a lot, but I think well, I'm <laughs> in any religion. But I think the, the benefit of, of any belief system, I think they would all say that you're supposed to actually mean what you say in your prayer. Now, there is some traditions, and this is true, for instance, in Buddhism, and I don't know if it's, that is, it, you have to remember that the average Muslim does not understand Arabic. Okay. So, therefore, they repeat the prayers which are in Arabic, but that doesn't mean they really know what they say. Unless they're in an Arabic-speaking country, you mean, right? Yes. Okay. But you have to understand now, the, the Arabic of the Quran is not the Arabic spoken out every day. Okay, okay. It is said that it, within all the Arab, Arab world, there's probably not more than a dozen people who could write a, write a paragraph in classical Arabic. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, interesting. So, the other thing that comes up a lot, I'm going to add this question to the list, is that there have been well-known now imams on YouTube giving very um, enthusiastic discussions about how non-Muslims need to be killed and what to do to them and why they're so bad to have on the earth. But what's the actual position of imam in the hierarchy and are there any of them that are not pushing really extreme violence? Well, interesting question. First off, we need to understand that 80% of the mosques built in the United States are built with Saudi money. Hmm, okay. Now, have you heard the expression, he who pays the piper calls the tune? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So if they build the mosque, guess who gets to serve in the mosque? Well, a Wahhabi does. Now, the Wahhabis are the strictest form of Islam. Okay. So therefore, you're going to have, in some way, and that doesn't have to be from the front of the room, by the way. Uh, an Im- Let's talk about imams a little bit. An imam is not necessarily a, a super scholar. I know a I know a man who was a Sharia jurist, and he said eighty percent of the eighty percent of the Muslim imams know very little about Islam. Hmm. Okay. But so that I mean, the reason I bring this up is amongst most people, they view an imam with some sort of a PhD, you know, super scholar. It's very funny. People who, I know a lot of Jews who've never read the Torah at all. Right, so do I. So, but people, so people do not presume that Jews are necessarily great scholars. But for some reason or another, that a Christian minister is necessarily a great scholar. But I noticed that a lot of intellectual deference is given to imams. So I was very surprised when this person who was an, an apostate and a Sharia jurist out of Iran, who said that the average Muslim just the average imam doesn't know that much about Islam? Okay, interesting. So I wonder how much variation there is um, among imams. I mean, are are the more mild personality Muslim people who are thinking kindly toward other people are they going to services performed by imams that stress different parts of the scriptures that aren't? So, well, I do uh, know I, there's two ways to sh- there's two ways to shop for a mosque. Number one is is your culture. The Somalis tend to worship with the Somalis. The Kurds worship with the Kurds. So that's one of the criteria for shopping for a mosque. Now there's another criteria, which is I don't like what the guy preaches. And I've heard this before: is that I went to this mosque, they got a new imam. He I didn't like what he was saying, so I left. Mm-hmm. You have to understand something. Muslims are human beings, and they have human thoughts and human feelings. And one of the things about being a human being is, although there may be some people we're not attracted to, in general, I find that I'm attracted to people. I went to a museum, and I wound up talking with one of the museum guards, just simply because he was there, and I struck up a conversation with him. It's a very social thing. Yeah, that certainly applies to pastors and rabbis and everybody else that I know of, of all kinds of religions, is that people go to hear the ones that they like. I mean, people yeah. that think are... are it's actually, natural. Right. Okay, so there's probably a lot of variation there. And um, someone asks, too, uh, this is kind of redundant in a way, but from a different angle, they say, is, is a Muslim who is friendly toward followers of other religions and atheists a bad Muslim? And I would just interject that from what you've been saying... It's okay to to act friendly, but not to actually have a friendly level of attachment to if you're following the scripture. Is that right? That is correct. In particular, the way this works out is is that you're not supposed to favor and just hey, how are you doing? It's fine. But if the, if you're a boss, you should promote the Muslim as opposed to the non-Muslim. You should favor the Muslim over the non-Muslim. Right. Now, this doesn't mean you're cranky and yellow and are hate-filled or anything. It's more of an interior attitude than it is anything else. Yeah, I had many you, Muslim you students. Act friendly to everybody. Right. I had many Muslim students. I never had one of them that got cranky with me about uh, because I was a kafir. 
As a matter of fact, when they discovered that I was willing to discuss religion, there was one of them in particular, a Shia student, who wanted to come and talk religion to me. Muslims that I met love to talk about Islam. I mean, they love it. Mm-hmm. Well, so, did they keep loving it after you brought up the parts of it that you're likely to talk about? Well, at that time, I didn't know as much. This was my, I was beginning to understand more about Islam. And as I was, and I did this because to me, there was a subtle barrier between me and these Muslim students. And I couldn't put my finger on it. But since I knew that the Quran played an important part of their life, that's where I started off. Now, I'd read bits and pieces of the Quran, but I read it in fullness. Mm-hmm. And so I would hold discussions with them and would one time, the one Muslim said to me, he said, Islam is the best religion. I says, how can you say that? I said, let me, because I says, do you know what religion you practice? He says, what do you mean? I says, you practice the religion of your parents. Well, yes. I said, you can't say that yours is the best religion until you've practiced Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, and Islam. Then you can say Islam is the best religion. But I said, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, you're simply repeating what you've been read in a book. And you, what you just, you're, you're like everyone else's religion. It's the parent religion of your parents. Mm-hmm. Well, that caused him a great deal of perplexing, and he changed the whole. He he didn't want to talk about that anymore. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, I I have to bring up a connected point, which is that before I found that, you know, you had written these books showing how to study the the different scriptures of Islam and I started using them, I had actually invited several Muslim friends on the air to talk from the inside of the religion about all these issues and explain what was actually going on from their point of view, not mine as a Kafir. And I didn't even know what a Kafir was at that point. So I just wanted to know from somebody who was practicing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I probably asked five different ones, some of whom were very knowledgeable. And none of them would come on, and I found out later the, the reason that was initially uh, not clear was that they were very afraid. And they weren't afraid of non-Muslims, they were afraid of other Muslim authority figures attacking them for saying anything, even if it was true, that might not sound good about Islam. Yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, that's why I couldn't get anybody to, to do these discussions from within the religion itself, although I did try. That's, that's very interesting. I've, I've never heard anything quite like that. Uh, but now, what, one of the things this points out is, is that Muslims are very much part of the Ummah. We're very much individualist. I mean, I'm a, I'm a cranky individualist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm the kind of guy who will stand up in a room of 100 people, and I'm the only one that holds a position and stand up and talk about it. Okay. <laughs> I do this because of my grandmother. She told you what she thought, no matter whether you liked it or not. Right, right. But Muslims are very much into the Ummah, that is, the community as a whole. And so, therefore, they have a much, much bigger feeling of whether I'm liked or not liked in the community. I have some feeling for this because I grew up in a little community called Flatwoods, Tennessee, in which there were 200 people there. Mm-hmm. There, your reputation meant more than it did in New York City. Yeah, absolutely right. And so, if you're in a tight-knit group then what other people think about you is far more important. I mean, part of my, quote, success or failure is, is that I've been told by more than one person they don't like what I say, but I'm like, eh, get over it. But for a Muslim, that would be far less true. Well, so so this is part of what what maybe our 
our final question for this segment, which is, what is so attractive in Islam that many people convert to Islam and even join jihad in distant countries? Well, I think we need to break it down into men and women, because <clears throat> we're living in America, and, and, and when I was in Europe, it's the same thing. It's much easier to get laid than it is to get a husband or a wife. All right? Okay. There are people who have long-term relationships. They may even live together, but they're not married. There are people who want marriage. If you join Islam, if you're a woman and you join Islam, you will get a husband. Okay. And you are, your husband is commanded to work, bring home a paycheck, and support you. Now, there's other things he can do I'm not fond of. For instance, wife beating is acceptable. Mm -hmm. And there's no such thing as rape in a marriage. But nevertheless, if you're looking to get married, it's very easy to do inside of Islam because their key individual is that of the husband and the father, not a rugged individual. Right. So right. now there's another thing, though. As Osama bin Laden said, everyone likes a strong horse. Islam is a religion which is on its toes. The other religions are on their heels. And when I say that, does that make sense? Um, yeah, wide awake and, and assertive, I think. Very assertive. Christians are no longer very assertive. And so, if you want a strong horse, and by the way, Christianity in particular has produced its ideal human being as somewhat of an effeminate person. A Christian is caring, loving, compassionate, sensitive, but he's not necessarily courageous. Mm -hmm. And there's an emphasis within Christianity, which is to the feminine side. Really, I don't like to use the word feminine. If I could use the word yin, it would be better. That means okay. something to you. Okay, okay. So, Islam is a very masculine kind of religion. I mean, you can be assertive, you can be angry, you can be pushy. Yeah, so this is not about gender. This is about uh, characteristics that yes. people can have of either sex. So, therefore, I really prefer the term yin and yang. Right. And so, okay. therefore, if you're looking for a really young religion, then you want to be a Muslim. And okay. there are those who are attracted even to a fight. I mean, how do you think the U.S. Marines get people to come on board when they say, we do the dirtiest, hardest, most dangerous jobs in the world? And there's a lot of 18-year-old men who go, yeah, give me a piece of that. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because by, by associating with it, it makes you tougher yourself. Yes. So those are some of the reasons... And, oh, there's another, there's another reason people convert. In our, in our lives today, to get firm, hard-edged boundaries is a little difficult. Even Christianity does not offer as many hard-edged boundaries as to your life as it used to. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, there are people who do not respond well to having blue sky openness all around them. To them, they don't like it. When you join Islam, there's a distinct, known answer for every question you can ask. Right. Well, that this, this leads to a doctrinal security in terms of like, you know exactly what their rules and you know how to follow them. So there are people who are attracted to a very structured uh, system of life. Okay. And these are some of the reasons that I think one of the reasons people convert. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's a really powerful psychology. Most people really don't like to be uncertain about what life means and what you're supposed to be doing with it. This is true. So, um, I feel like we've just barely started, so I hope that you'll come back for a further episode before very long at all, and we can just keep going. We've got lots more questions that people would like to ask you. I think so, and I think also that, um, to me, this material is fascinating. Yeah, I'm a bit it is. Odd, but I think it's very fascinating. It, it's like another world. 
Uh, yeah, it, well, it's it's looking into kind of a vision into an aspect of psychology or people's minds and emotions and what attracts people and what kind of values are popular and things like that. I mean, it's just about every part of life you can look at through the lens of, of how Islam views it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thanks for talking with me. All right. Nice to talk to you again, Dr. Warner, and we'll be in touch soon. Oh, can I mention my website? Yeah, please. I'm sorry I forgot to do that. Politicalislam.com. Yeah, I really recommend getting all of your books, too. I've read all of them. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See ya.